Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. My name is Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose a noteworthy new book on some corner of the world of sports and we interview the author. In this week's podcast, we are looking at the history of hockey in Canada and the former Soviet Union. Our guest is Todd Deneau. He is the author of The Greatest Game, The Montreal Canadiens, The Red Army, and The Night That Saved Hockey. It is a given that hockey is the national game of Canada. Far more than being the country's most popular sport, hockey is a key part of Canadian national identity. But in the 1960s and 70s, Canada faced an identity crisis. No longer could Canadians make the undisputed claim to be the best at the sport they invented. There was a new and formidable challenger in international hockey, the Soviet Union. In the 1950s, Soviet teams won their first World Hockey Championships, And then in the 60s, they were dominant in the World Championships and the Olympics. Since this was the age before NHL players participated in international tournaments, Canadians could make the argument that their best players weren't competing. But in 1972, a team of Canadian NHL players met a Soviet team for the first time. Team Canada won the eight-game Summit Series, but the result was close enough to keep Canadian fans unsettled. Todd focuses on the subsequent Super Series of exhibition games in 1975 and 76, when two club teams from the Soviet League played eight NHL teams. The highlight of the series was the matchup of the Red Army team, the dominant club in the Soviet Union, and the most storied team in the NHL, the Montreal Canadiens. The game ended in a 3-3 tie, perhaps an appropriate result in a match between the two best clubs in the world, As Todd says, this was hockey played at its most pure, its most beautiful form, in contrast to the intimidating style of play that had reigned in the early 1970s. And he argues that the success of this game and the Canadiens' later Stanley Cup win over the hard-fighting Flyers led to an important change in the NHL, pointing the way to the faster, more offense-oriented, and more international league of the 1980s. Todd weaves together several historical and biographical strands into his book, and his account of the game itself is a vivid, even cinematic piece of sports writing. So let's turn to the interview. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining me on New Books and Sports. Well, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. I'll ask you first to give a bit of background about yourself. Uh, The Greatest Game is your second book, following upon your acclaimed biography of Hall of Fame goaltender Jacques Plante. Can you tell us about how you came to be a writer of hockey history? Um, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I've always been a fan of hockey. Uh, going back, I, I can't remember a time where I wasn't a fan of sort of that way. Um, and as for the history angle, I've always been interested in history. Um, I went to university and actually got a uh, degree, a Bachelor of Arts degree in history. So it's a combination of the two. Uh, when, you, when you love history and you love hockey, I guess it's only natural that the two should meet 
And uh, I've always been fascinated by um, hockey's past and how we got to where we are today. Um, make a long story short, uh, when it came to Jacques Plante, my first book, I had already done some writing for blogs and various things, and I was watching a TV special a couple years ago on um, Plante, and they had a, uh, his old mask that he'd actually worn the night against the Rangers. He could put it on. They had it uh, on the set. And um, I'm one of those people that's naturally curious. I wanted to read more about Plant. I was like, wow, I'd really like to read a book about him. And I searched high and low, and when I didn't uh, find one, I thought to myself, hmm. <laughs> you know? And I'd always been looking for, I'd always had in my mind to write a book, but like most people, it's, well, what's a subject that I'm going to want to do, and on the flip side, people are going to want to read about, and most importantly, somebody's going to actually pay me to do it. So Plant just it was like the light bulb went off. And uh, all from there, just, you know, a series of steps. And the next thing you know, you go into a bookstore and there's the Jacques Plante book. Yeah. So that's a common story. I'm going to write the book I want to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you, you know, I think to myself, wow, if I'm curious, certainly other people are going to be curious, you would think. And, and boy, if it's not out there, wow, that seems like a real omission. And the more you looked around, you went, geez, you know, there's, there's a lot. There's three books or something on Terry Sawchuk and, Johnny Bauer's got an autobiography, and Glenn Hall has an autobiography, that was, and all these books came out within the last 10 years, and I went, geez, you know, Plant's really, you know, he's, he's in that group. I mean, I'm not going to say whether he's better or worse, but he's in that group, and, and he's clearly the biggest innovator in the group, and I just couldn't understand it, so I thought, wow, I better get this idea in quick, because, of course, your main fear is, wow, somebody else has to have this idea, too. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned some other titles of, of biographies and memoirs by, by famous goalies. And in Canada, writing on hockey is a rich and varied field, both in terms of fiction and nonfiction. It's probably similar to writing about baseball in the States or writing about soccer in England. So looking, uh, could you say something about the state of the field right now in Canada in terms of writing about the history of hockey? It's tough. Right now it's tough because of the economy. Um, there's not as many publishers to go to as there were even five or ten years ago, um, which leads to not as many writing opportunities. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we're in a current period, too, where most of the publishers are interested in, uh, you know, the autobiography and, and the, uh, uh, you know, the Fair and Flurry type book, which has, you know, a bit of dirt to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that seems to be where we're currently at. Of course, when something sells as well as the Flurry book, other publishers jump on the chance to, okay, we want a book like that. We want a book like that. Um, I remember when I was shopping around the Plant book, there were questions about, well, geez, what, what, what kind of dirt is there? What is there? You know, and that's, you know, it's unfortunate, but there's not as many options, especially for uh, writers looking to get into it. It's tough. I I mean, when I sold Jacques Plante, I, it was, the book was sold on Jacques Plante. I mean, their question was, well, can he write it? Uh, now, if you're a first-timer, it's tough. You have to have a solid idea, but at the same time, the book companies, because of you know dwindling resources, aren't as willing to take chances anymore. And it's really hurt. the ho- There's still hockey books out there every fall, but most and more and more they've become you know, typical, uh, you know, the best 100 players, the best 50 goalies, the best photos, the best. Whereas good, hard-hitting, um, 
you know, real history-based books are getting tougher to find. Uh, you know, a book like um, Kevin Shea's biography of Bill Barocco, which is, which is fantastic. That's a tough book to get done now because a lot of people, well, who's Bill Barocco? And I always think the, the story, a, a true book is a book that educates you. I mean, I don't, shouldn't have to know who Bill Barocco is. I read the book to find out who Bill Barocco <laughs> is. But, but they don't think of it that way. Well, who's Bill Barocco? Uh, and, I mean, that was... That was one book that, you know, wow, it educated you and it entertained you at the same time. Unfortunately, there seems to be less and less of that, and it's it's become a real chore to find books that just don't seem to go over the same, you know, ground every time. But, I mean, hopefully it all goes in cycles, and hopefully, you know, somebody writes the next great book, and everybody gets all excited, and then they want more like it. But uh, it's like, it's funny, like baseball. There seems to be a real in the in the states. There seems to be a real thing to beyond biography now. There's books on years, uh, specific moments, and all this. And, and hockey's been slower, the literature market to to kind of jump on that. It's still traditionally biographies and autobiographies and team history seem to be the uh, topic to yours. And is there much attention to uh, international hockey? So your your book does focus on the Canadians, the Montreal Canadiens, but but you look at the Soviet Red Army team. Are there similar books that like that that are looking at at international hockey? Unfortunately, it's not really a huge genre. Most of the books tend to focus on you know the Leafs or the Canadians or big players. Uh, I should mention that like books on 1972 and the Summit series are plentiful. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, that's the most written about next to Wayne Gretzky, I guess, the most written about <laughs> hockey series of all time. Uh, at this point, I mean, I know there's even a book coming out next this fall. This fall, yeah, the 40th anniversary of 72, so there's going to be a couple more books. Like, it's all been said. Like, there's nothing really much more to do there. And unfortunately, the focus is on 72. Um, there is, with the exception of uh, Lawrence Martin's book, The Red Machine, which looks at the origins of Soviet hockey. And, you know, there's one book by Ed Wills, um, From Gretzky to Lemieux, which is on the 87 Canada Cup. Very little opposed to 72. Like, 72 is the book, and then that's it. Um, There's a gentleman who just uh, contacted me. He did a book on the 74 Summit Series, which is a lot less known between the WHA, Mm -hmm. Team Canada, and the Russians. And he had to go the independent route on it. Um, there's a gentleman, um, I just actually got an email. There's a gentleman writing a book on, uh, the Russian players coming over in the early nineties, uh, McGillney's and, uh, Fedorov's and, uh, Burris, those types of players. So it's still a fertile ground to write about because as I said, there's been so much written about 72 that it tends to take away from everything else. Mm-hmm. And so what was the story specifically behind The Greatest Game in terms of where you came across the idea and, and getting started in the research? I've had the idea kicking around for a while. I've always been fascinated by um, the idea and the question of that game for 35 years has been referred to as the greatest game. Um, sure, have there been other great games, obviously, you know, 87 Canada Cup, Game 3, and uh, so many great games, but at the fundamental heart, that game is still referred to as the greatest game. Uh, and I've always been curious, and I guess the purpose of the book was twofold, was 
geez, what makes that game the greatest game? And then number two, and even more relevantly, what makes it so important? What made that game the greatest game? And, and the book is really an exploration in terms of the lead-up and the following post-months after and years. What makes that game so special? What makes it so important? You know, What makes it the greatest game? So let's turn to the book. The, the first part of the book weaves various background threads that come together with the game on New Year's Eve 1975. Um, you talk about individual players, you talk about coaches, uh, you talk about team administrators, but you also talk about the larger developments in both Canadian and Russian hockey. And I want to ask first about hockey in the Soviet Union. And, and this is a story of rapid development and immediate impressive success. So could you tell us about hockey, how hockey emerged in the Soviet Union? Well, hockey um, didn't really take hold in the Soviet Union until after the Second World War. Um, the first leagues were formed, it became structured, and, and a real critical part in the development was the government supervision. And, and uh, for the younger uh, listeners out there, people for... That period was uh, the communist regime um, up until 53 under Stalin, and then after that, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, etc., etc. That was um, a state-sponsored sport where the government not only put money into the sport, they put money into its training, they put money into its development, but they also put theory and practice. Uh, when you saw the Soviet Union hockey team uh, you saw a representative of the Soviet communist government. I mean, they acted a certain way, they played a certain way, and it was all directed from above. Um, easiest way I can say it is, is they were a collective, whereas in Canada, uh, we've always stressed the individuality of the great players, you know, the Gordie Howes, the Rocket Richards, Belavos, and the Gretzkys. Uh, in the Soviet Union, they really stressed the team concept, the uh, so much so that, to us at least, it seemed like a team of you know robots, all interchangeable, and and uh, you know each guy had his own specific task, but nobody was better than the other. Of course, by the time we saw them in '72, you had the Tretiaks and the Haramovs, and of course we made them stars uh, just by noticing them. But everything was played within the team concept. Um, they they actually ascended very quickly, rapidly, almost. Uh, to the top of the international hockey world uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Russia is a huge country. Back then, still is. Lots and lots of people. And it's naturally inclined, much like uh, Canada's climate, uh, for ice hockey, outdoor rinks and sticks and all that. And um, they were very tightly organized. They were very shrewdly um, coached uh, by a man named... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> We edit that part? Sure, we can take that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll mark it down. We're about 12 yeah, minutes. Yeah. Okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. They, were very, uh, they were very shrewdly coached by uh, a gentleman by the name of Anatoly Tarasov, who uh, was elected into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1974 and, and is unquestionably the father of Russian hockey. And it's his, um, it's his beliefs, it's his coaching, it's his system that is in place and uh, his personality, uh, which was uh, abrasive to say the least, and he almost willed the Russian teams to become the dominant force. And, and over time, you, you see them, they, they win their first world championship in 1954, 
and they're competitive throughout the 50s, and then in the 60s they become dominant to the point where they win 12 world championships in a row and become the dominant team. It, it's fascinating how they basically, if you look at it, equaled Canadian hockey in the span of less than a quarter of a century. They came to equal it. And so you mentioned a bit about it because you talk more specifically about what were the differences between Soviet hockey and Canadian hockey in terms of in terms of training and then in terms of strategy on the ice during the game. Well, the, the Soviets were much, much more into this concept of a year-round training. Uh, I'm still... I'm old enough to remember the days when the guys would, in the NHL and hockey would spend their summers uh, hitting the golf circuit and the banquet circuit, and, and training camp in September was uh, a time to get in shape for the upcoming season. You know, skate a bunch of laps around the ice and we get in shape. Uh, the Soviets were way ahead in terms of being in shape 12 months a year, uh, practicing outdoors for hockey, you know, dry land training, the concept of, of jogging or uh, outdoor soccer playing, you know, building up cardio uh, was really a feature of the Soviet program long before we, you know, as Canadians even bothered. Uh, it's only with the success of the Soviet Union that when people looked over and went, geez, you know, they're in shape all the time. Uh, the days of going to training camp now, of course, and losing 10, 15 pounds to get in shape are long gone. Um, but all the stuff you see today, like this stuff, even a couple days ago, even a couple days ago, watching the combine with the kids working out on the exercise bikes, um, you know that's traceable. Sorry, that's traceable to the Soviet Union. Um, you know, we didn't do that. For us, it was skate a couple laps and you'll get in shape. And in '72, we paid the price for that kind of thinking. And uh, on the ice, they um, we again tend to think thought of at the time of the individual. Uh, the Soviet Union on the ice was very much team-based, uh, and they were patient. You know, we have the great image of Bobby Hall coming from behind his net and skating the length of the ice and scoring a, a wonderful goal. That never happened in the Soviet Union. I mean, they were very particular about pass here, pass here, pass there. I mean, they would do 12, 15, 20 passes to set up a perfect goal. Like every goal was almost like a work of art, like that the whole team was involved in. So. It was much more of a team-based concept, and uh, again, something that we had to play catch-up with in the 70s, 80s, and you know that they were really ahead of their time with the passing, controlling the puck, and uh, you know they just took the game in a different direction than we had ever thought of doing. So this is the typical uh, comparison that's made: is is a game of speed and passing as opposed to. The Canadian game, which is typically typically associated with uh, one an individual style of play, as you talk about, but also a rougher style of play. Could you talk about that? Yeah, the Canadian style uh, again back then much more aggressive. You know, even uh, dump the puck in the corner and rub out the defenseman and throw the puck to the front of the net. You know, almost like a you know a, I used the, the analogy like a bull moose in a china shop. You know, the whole Phil Esposito is the perfect example of. You know, a player who just comes crashing into the crease, waits for the puck or waits for a rebound, and just, you know, the typical what they call quote-unquote garbage goal. Um, you know, Esposito, you know, represent, like that was what made him, to the Russian player, such an eye-opener. It was like, how could he play like this? I mean, there was no, um, there was determination, there was hard work, and there was just a, 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 an utter 
belief in getting the puck to the net and like just charging in, which was you know the opposite of the Soviet way of passing around and making it a beautiful passing play and all that. Well, you know, Phil Esposito on a list of his career, I mean, you're not going to find five gorgeous goals. But, you know, the goals went in the net. You know, the, the, the idea of the game is to put the puck in the net. And, and Phil was one of those guys who found a way. And that was the Canadian thing was get the puck in the net. And the way you did that was you, you rub out a defenseman in the corner. You know, you take a slap shot to point with three guys in front of the goalie screening him or getting in his way. It's not pretty, but at the end of the day, the pucks in the back of the net. Well, the Soviets, uh, there was no, you know, getting in front and banging the goalie. There was no going in the corner to rub out. It was, you know, we'll make 10 passes to find the open guy, whereas Canadian hockey, fire it at the net and hope for the best. I mean, it sounds simplistic now, but uh, it just reflects the two different, I mean, if the Canadian way of hockey is more of a physical, you know, brutal, um, you know, bang away. The Soviet one was more elegant and beautiful, both effective in their own way. And interestingly enough, now it's become all amalgamated with all the, you know, the difference in Russian players here and there. But back then, especially if you watch the 72 series, uh, you get a real sense early on that the Russians, you know, they're faster, they're, they're quicker, you know, the, the goals are beautiful. But by the time it goes over to Moscow, I mean, it's a street fight. It's Canadian, that's Canadian hockey. It's we're going to win this game. We may not be as flashy, you know. We may not be as beautiful with the puck, but we're going to reach down inside ourselves, and we're going to find a passion, a belief that we're going to force you to do that as well. And that's what happened over in Moscow in '72. So, so that was not uh, that was not the prettiest hockey, but uh, when you have to win, and that's all you can think of. Amazing uh, how certain things get that are beautiful about the sport sometimes get relegated into the passion of you know we just got to put the puck in the net somehow some way. So most of the early meetings between Soviet and Canadian teams happen in international tournaments in the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, could you talk about what were the results of these these first meetings? Most of the meetings, well, in the sixties especially, but, uh, in the fifties. It's almost an even matchup. You know, the Soviets win the Worlds in 54. Canada wins it back in 55. But starting in uh, 61, 60, Canada doesn't beat the Soviets, you know, for the next decade. Um, I guess the obvious answer to that is the teams that were being sent over at the time um, mostly were senior hockey teams. Um, That is, teams that had players that were older, that weren't necessarily talented enough to make the NHL for whatever reason. Um, and then furthermore, we developed more of an amateur uh, style as well, where we took uh, players from different amateur teams um, and even some uh, college kids and played the Soviets that. Um, the argument being that the Canadian argument for losing over that decade was, well, it's not our best players. You know, it's not the NHL guys, which... The ironic part of that is it was really disrespectful to the Soviet Union because back in the 50s, it didn't have to be our best players, and we were still able to beat them. It really showed how the Soviet game had really taken off, that what had been good enough to compete in 1955, less than a decade decade later, and even, you know, has no chance of winning, beating them in a game. And 
the Soviets, you know, were so dominant in international hockey that the Canadian fallback position, because hockey being such a part of our national psyche, was that's not our best player. Our best players are in the NHL. So it doesn't really matter what they do. And if they ever played the NHL guys, we'd wipe the floor with them because they were so much better than them. That's our professionals. And, of course, in 1972, there was quite a wake-up call uh, as to the superiority or supposed superiority of the Canadian NHL players. So that brings us up to the 1972 Summit Series. And, and something interesting in the book, and you, you talked about it earlier on, is that uh, the Summit Series is really just a, a prelude in, in your book. So could you talk about it and its importance in your story that you write? Yeah, well, the 72 Series was, was such a shocking event. Um, you know, everybody now today remembers the Henderson goal and, and all that. But if you go back a month before... Um, you're talking about, as I said, the NHL was supposed to just walk all over these guys. Eight straight, no problem. Piece of cake. And, and that first game in Montreal um, may be, you know, maybe one of the most important games in hockey history uh, where the Soviets came out and won 7-3. It's certainly the most important game in Soviet hockey history. Uh, I mean, in Canada here, we celebrate Henderson's goal in game eight. And, but that first game is the same over in Russia now. That's their game, where they really came on and, and, and really exposed the superiority complex and that they couldn't compete with NHL players. And, you know, over the course of 60 minutes, that all crumbles. Um, the thing about 72 that was interesting on a couple levels was it was almost more a sense of relief within Canada when Canada won the series. Like, even though it was close, and even though it took till Paul Henderson's score, Canada won. So there was a belief even then and that, well, we've won. That proves that we're still better. And then it was almost like Canada and within the media became almost a sore winner in that there was a lot of speculation of, well, if if Bobby Orr had played, if Bobby Hall had played, if, if we'd trained for a whole year, if, if we knew that they were good, we'd still, we would have beaten them a lot easier. You know, if, if, if we would have had, you know, proper rule, like all these excuses that really mask the fact that, Hey, there's another country on the block here that can play hockey just as good as us. And, and the real fear that was unwritten and unspoken was the fear that, they may be better than us. So the Super Series, which came three years later, was really an attempt to do away with the excuses that had followed the 72 Series. The main one amongst them being that we viewed the Soviet team as a proper team. They played together 12 months of the year. They trained together. If you had the best NHL team, which was a team that played together all year and trained together, we'd beat them no problem. And hence why the Super Series was played really at the midpoint of the NHL season. This is our best versus your best. And now under NHL rules, with NHL referees, the series was stacked to prove the point to so many, in Canada at least, that the NHL and Canadian hockey were far superior. So you do describe the Cold War as a backdrop to this rivalry between Canada and the Soviet Union, but, but for Canadians, to what extent were the games in these series with the Soviets about politics 
And to what extent were they about about hockey, about who had the best hockey players, who had the best hockey team in the world? Well, it's impossible to overlook the political overtones uh, at the time. It's tough for people to imagine that today, but at the time, you know, this was East versus West, democracy versus communism, you know, good versus evil, and all played out on a, on a hockey rink. Um, one must keep in mind that, again, there was very little separation between the Soviet hockey team and the government. They were one and the same in that they were taught to behave a certain way, act a certain way, they were coached a certain way, all wrapped up in the political atmosphere. Um, there was also the fear, and, and this is typical when you have two competing political-slash-cultural you know, ideologies, you know, we think in Canada that we're better than you. Our way of life is better than the Soviet Union. And on the flip side, the Soviet Union, well, our way of life is a better way of life. Well, the most critical thing that, that binds Canadians together, the the one thing that we all, that's ours, you know, we're, we're a country that, you know, we live north of the great elephant, which is the United States. The one thing we have is hockey. You know, that's ours. You know, we, we, we founded it. We've cultivated it. You know, we may not be as good in other sports. You know, we may not be as big population-wise. We may not have, you know, Hollywood movies or, you know, great musicians or all these other cultural things we take a backseat. But the one thing that we don't take a backseat in is hockey. And, and what the Soviet Union was doing was going right to, that, right to that point, right to that psyche of, hey, we're better at hockey than you guys are. And... You know, we're, we're, we're playing it better. We play it more beautifully. You know, and that really struck a chord in this country. And, and that's the main thing. You even see it today. Um, you know, last year in the Olympics, you know, Canada versus U.S. You know, for the U.S., it would have been great to win the gold medal. Would have been a huge accomplishment. Um, in Canada, there is no other option but winning the gold medal. Nothing else matters but the gold medal. It's, it's expected. And when it doesn't happen, it's a national crisis, and we have government commissions and what's wrong with the state of hockey and all this. But when we win, okay, we've won. We've, we've solidified our belief, you know, we're the best in the world at at least one thing, and that's hockey. And that hasn't changed. And that was the case in 72. It was the case in 75. It's the case now, and it'll probably be the case 20 years from now. Um, and that's what made it so important at that time. So despite this rivalry and despite this, uh, uh, the importance of hockey for Canadian national identity, something that's striking in the book is that there is a great appreciation among the Canadians, both players and fans, for Soviet players. And likewise, on the Soviet side, there was a great respect for Canadian players and Canadian coaches. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, the thing that was interesting when researching the book is is it's tough to imagine today, and you know, we live in an age of the internet and satellite television, and and you know, like even you know when stuff like a couple months ago, stuff's happening in Egypt or the Arab world, we see it live on you know CNN or you know Fox News or whatever the channel is. It's right there. Uh, back then, you didn't see that. I mean, the the Soviet Union was cut off from the rest of the world, and we people in the Soviet Union, by the token, were not seeing us either. So in that age, there was a respect level because we'd never seen hockey played that way. And, 
And the natural inclination in a hockey-crazed culture like our own is, wow, what are they doing? And number two, how come we're not doing that? And, and there was a natural belief amongst many, not all. Uh, I mean, there were some who thought, we're not going to do it. Our way of hockey is perfect. We don't need to change anything. But the truly progressive thinkers, you know, the, the Scotty Bowmans, you know, the Fred Shiro's, the, the real curious coaches, um, and especially players as well, were, wow, what are they doing? What's, what makes them different? And, and, I mean, at the end of the day, they're hockey players. Um, you know, they have that common bond. And, and I think there was a real interesting dynamic, like, you know, Ken Dryden and Vladislav Tretiak. I mean, Dryden, wow, what's, what's it like? What's his life been like? What's, what does he think? What does he, what, what does he feel? And then likewise, Tretiak towards Dryden. I mean, here's two different people from opposite ends of the world, you know, who grew up under the most different circumstances and under the most different ways of life, but who at the end of the day have one thing in common, and it's the sport of hockey. And I think at the end of the day, that almost trumps all the other stuff around it. I mean, as Steve Shutt used to say, you know, people, they put the boards up with the glass, and ideally the glass, that's to protect the fans from a puck coming off the ice. But, but Shutty always looked at it as that, that keeps everybody else out, so <laughs> that glass. That makes it our room, the ice, on the ice. It's just us, you and me. And I, it's, it's similar in that respect. You know, once all the politics and all that get out of the way, at the end of the day, it's two hockey teams playing each other where the pucks dropped and who can score more goals than the other team. So you mentioned your, your, the characters who are really your two principles of the book, Ken Dryden, the goalie for the Canadians, and Vladislav Tretiak, the, co- the goalie for the Red Army team and for the Soviet national team. So could you give, give something more of a portrait of these two as your central characters and also as goalies? Yeah, well, uh, the reason that they're, they're really the two central characters for a lot of reasons. I mean, I guess being goalies, you know, you're always the central character. But in this case, I mean, Dryden and Tretiak had a history before 75. They had a history in 72, and they had a history before 72. Uh, they first played against each other in a game in Victoria, B.C. in 1969. Um, the two goalies are interesting in that Tretiak, his whole life, is being a goalie. He, uh, you know, he's, he's spotted when he's very young. He's put in a training school. He spends hours upon hours every day uh, training to become a goalie. Uh, so much so to the point that twice he's denied permission to take a day off so he can get married. I mean, we're seven days a week, 24 hours a day, goaltending, goaltending, you know, goaltending. He's almost molded to be that perfect goalie, and his whole life is goaltending. Whereas on the flip side, Ken Dryden um, is the complete opposite. Sure, he's a goaltender, and he loves playing goal, but he doesn't view himself as just a goaltender, you know. He's, he's a student. He's He's trying to become a lawyer. You know, he's a writer. He's, he's all these different things. Goaltending makes up a part of him, but to him it doesn't define him. And, and I thought the contrast between Tretiak's youth and formative stages of 100% goaltending really stood as opposed to Dryden, who, you know, basically turned down the Canadians twice to, to further his education. And then when he was the Canadians, sat out a year over financial, a contract dispute, um, and went to law school and went and took an articling job uh, up here in Toronto. So, I mean, just a humongous contrast between the two guys. But their main similarity 
is on the ice, is in there, you know, as goaltenders. And, and the dynamic between how they seem to meet each other at all these points. And, of course, the game itself is an interesting dynamic because it's undoubtedly probably Vladis Latrechiak's greatest night as a goalie. And on the flip side, um, it may be one of Ken Dryden's worst nights as a goalie. So that dynamic interested me. Another background thread you talk about in the story is the is the story of the Montreal Canadiens. You describe the rebuilding of a team that had been in the 1950s the greatest dynasty probably in hockey history. So now by 1975, what made the Canadiens again the greatest team in the NHL? Yeah, I, 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 part of the thing of the book is I wanted to not only talk about the history, but I wanted to make it so when these two teams play each other on December 31st, 1975, how do these two teams get there? How do the players on the teams get there? How do they meet at that night? And, and, and on the Montreal side, um, the book is really a story almost of Sam Pollock, who was the general manager of the team uh, starting in 1964. And he'd been associated with the team going back to the late 40s. And what happened there is we all remember the five-in-a-row cup team. And what had happened is, as you know, the Rocket retires in 60, um, Doug Harvey's traded in 61, uh, Jacques Plante in 63, um, Dickie Moore retires. I mean, that team got older. And, and what Sam Pollock did was he basically rejigged the team. And, and through a period in NHL history where we went from the original six to the expansion – I mean, the, the landscape is changing all around him. Um, the way players are taken, the way everything's changing, and but Sam Pollock is a step ahead of everybody. You know, in a sea of change, it's the Canadians who still win. I mean, they win four cups in five years in the 60s, and, you know, they win a cup in 71, they win another in 73. The 75-76 team was the full flowering of that. Uh, it's ironic they look back now and people view the 73 cup as a transitional cup, you know, where the team is kind of half the team that was going to win four in a row and half of the team from the early seventies. But that's true. And, and Sam meticulously built that Canadians team into a certain style. I mean, of course we all remember, you know, the Lafleur and Dryden and shot and all that. But I mean, that team was built just as importantly on guys like, you know, Bob Ganey, you know, Doug Risebrow, Mario Trombley, all of whom play a pivotal role in what was to come. But that team in the late 70s was probably the most complete NHL team uh, ever assembled in terms of, you know, Hall of Fame goalie, three Hall of Fame defensemen, you know, six Hall of Fame forwards, Hall of Fame coach. I mean, there was no weak spot. And, and what made that Montreal team so special is, is Sam Pollock had built it to be a team, hey, if you want to play run-and-gun offense, we'll play that. If you want to play shutdown defense tight game, we'll play that. you want to play it rough, we'll play that. A team that could adapt to every single style and every single opponent. And, I mean, frankly, there's been a lot of great teams since then, but I don't know if there's been a team that could claim that particular, you know, ability to play whatever style, whatever game their opponent could play, and to play it successfully, and to play it better than their opponent. Let's turn to the 1975-76 Super Series, and you, you've already said a bit about the motivation for setting up this, this series between two Soviet teams and NHL teams. Could you just explain what was the program, what was the schedule, and, and what was the first result in the series? 
well, there was there was two teams that came over. There was the Soviet Wings and the Red Army. Um, the Wings, I mean, it were probably to be fair, they were the B team. Uh, they were not the uh, main attraction. Uh, they played uh, Buffalo and Pittsburgh, and and their four games were not as widely covered. The, the real meat of the matter was the Red Army, which, for all intents and purposes, with the, with the exception of maybe one or two guys, was the Russian national team. And they were the team, the Red Army, that dominated over in the Soviet Union. They won the, the title all the time over there. So they were the real, you know, the real champions coming over. I mean, they had Tretiak, they had Harlamov, all the great players were there. So they played the four games that were the ones that everybody remembers, the four real marquee matchups, starting with the Rangers, you know, then Montreal, then Boston, and then ending in Philadelphia. Um, the Rangers, ironically enough, that year was a real year for them where they were really in transition. Uh, they still had Phil Esposito, but the team was not really quite that good. And I think it was almost, um, for a lot of people, the Ranger game, which was held four days before the Montreal game, was almost like a warm-up. Uh, like the Ranger, the Ranger game, you know, the Russians came out and put on an exhibition of skill, totally dominated the Rangers. And I think that whetted the appetite for the Montreal game, that when you saw them destroy the Rangers, you went, geez, these guys aren't, they're not, like, it was labeled exhibition games, but these, these, they're not letting up. You know, they're playing this like as if it's a really important game. And the Soviet players did view these games just as importantly as the Canadian players. Uh, they viewed uh, this as a chance for them to show their skills against the best NHL players. And in the, uh, you know, the vain but sad hope that just maybe, you know, an NHL team might go, hey, these guys are good enough to play here. And unfortunately, because politics and the time none of them ever did but it was a chance for them to showcase their skills against the best and and when they uh, decimated the rangers team i mean that really hyped up that montreal game because you know if the red army goes into montreal and is able to beat the canadians at the form i mean that's a that's a big notch on the belt uh so i mean there was a there was a nervousness and an anticipation for that game that i don't know if you're ever going to see again in terms of a, a, a game between two teams that isn't, like, say, a Canada gold medal game against whoever. I mean, that game had a lot on the line uh, pride-wise that maybe wasn't reflected in, you know, trophies or medals. So I don't want to go into detail about the game itself, and this is this is really the core part of your book, but I do want to ask you about your approach. In, in your section on the game, you alternate from the players' preparations to the broadcaster's preparations. You even have an interesting part about the person who sings the national anthems. Can you say a bit about what you were trying to achieve with this approach as a writer in recreating the game? The part when it comes to the game, um, and even the day or two before, I wanted to give the reader you know, a glimpse of the event. Uh, the one thing um, Dick Irvin, uh, who was the broadcaster that night, told me, was that for him, it was the greatest event he'd ever attended. And I kept getting that when I kept talking to people who were there, that, you know, everybody was dressed up to the nines and the suits and the, the women in the fur coats because it was New Year's Eve and, you know, they were heading out to maybe parties after the game. Like, it was the sense of the event. And I wanted to capture that event 
from almost any angle I could, whether it be, you know, the, the pregame, the referees, uh, as you said, uh, the announcer. I wanted to give the reader a glimpse of just the atmosphere that night in that ring. I mean, you can watch it on TV now, and it does uh, the video, and it does come through as an electric evening. But at that moment, you, you know, you have to, as a writer, your attempt is to try and inform the reader of, hey, this was a big deal, and and this is what made it a big deal, and and you wanted to cover it from every angle and. I was fortunate enough in the book to talk to Ralph Mellenby, who was the actual director that night in the truck for CBC and, and the broadcast of the game. And his perspective on the game was fantastic. I mean, he had a different perspective because he's the guy directing what you see on the television, whereas somebody who's in the rink has a completely different perspective than a person sitting on their couch in Toronto. And, and I wanted to capture it, all of it. And, and every single aspect of that event to, to really put through to people that this wasn't just another hockey game. No, this was, this was an, an event that people not only at the time went, wow, or in the days after went, wow, the spectacle, but, you know, why has this game endured for 35 years as the greatest game? And I think to explain that, you have to kind of cover the event and try and get every angle to really tell the reader, hey, this is a big deal. So the game ended in a in a three three tie, but you cite CBC broadcaster Dick Irvin as saying that the Canadians completely outplayed the Red Army. Is that an accurate assessment of the game? Yeah, uh, the game. Yeah, like, uh, uh, I think I think the main the one thing that sticks with me in all the interviews and talking to people is uh, is Red Fisher uh, for the Montreal Gazette, who's been the Canadians' writer since 1955. I mean, he's seen a lot. And, and he said to me that, that on that night, the Canadian uh, skaters played the greatest game he's ever seen a Montreal Canadiens team play, with the exception of the goalie. But he felt that the skaters had played the greatest game he's ever seen. Now, this is a guy who's seen that entire 50s dynasty on up. I mean, that's a heavy statement. Of course, at the same time, Scotty Bowman, who was the coach that night for the Canadians, told me that Tretiak had played as great a game in goal as he's ever seen. So that's, that's really the dynamic of the game. I mean, you have this great offensive uh, team playing perfectly against the goalie who's having the night of his life, and that's the dynamic of the game. The flip side of that is you have Dryden playing a game that he would probably rather forget against the Russian team that only got 13 shots in the entire game. Um, the Russians only had two odd-man rushes the entire game, and they scored on both. I mean, they were an opportunistic team that night, and, and the fact that it was a tie, I think in some ways was poetic justice in terms of, uh, you know, I think for hockey going forward, the fact that it was a tie gave it more of an appeal, too. And, and didn't necessarily say who's better, but, you know, really the sport became the victor. But on that night, the Canadians outshot them 38-13. And if, if it weren't for Tretiak, um, I don't think the score is even remotely close to 3-3. We're probably not talking about the greatest game. But because of Tretiak, you know, who was easily the first star that night, he elevated his game to a level that matched the Canadians and that made it the greatest game. So I have one, one question about the game, and I know that you've, you've watched the broadcast uh, for your research. 
uh, a friend of mine, a Canadian friend who remembers watching the game. He was he was very excited to hear that I was interviewing you about this book. Uh, he told me he recently watched part of the game on YouTube, and he was struck. He said by how slow the action was, and he wanted me to ask you. Is is this a matter of his memory playing tricks that as a kid watching the game he remembered it being a faster game or is it a matter that hockey now is so much more faster than it was back in 1975? It's a matter of hockey now being so much faster. Uh, you also keep in mind too the players today are a lot bigger. Uh, the shots are a lot faster. Everything about the game is bigger, faster, stronger. But the only thing that hasn't changed is the size of the rink. Mm-hmm. Um, also today with the high-def television and the close-ups, you do get more of a feel for the game. Uh, you got to keep in mind that at that time, it was the overhead camera angle, and they had two close-ups on each net. So it didn't really give you a sense. You didn't get any angles from the bench of the, the guy skating. You were always on that up-top angle, which makes the game slower. Today you watch a hockey game, and they're right down in the action. You know, you have points where they're right there. You didn't get that. All you had was the overhead shot, one camera, and then a little camera on each net. So when a shot came, they would zoom to the net. It didn't really give you a good portrayal of a guy skating up the ice, you know, from that overhead. Whereas today, they have the guys at bench level who show that, and especially in HD. Looks, you know, I remember as a kid, even when I went to see games, it was so much faster than what it was on TV. You know, when you go in the arena, it seemed a lot faster. Um, but, I mean, it's funny you mention that, because when I talked to Scotty Bowman about the game, the one thing he remembered the most was the pace of the game. And Scotty's like, the pace, the pace, the pace. Like, it never let up. There was, And there, when you watch the tape, there are moments where they go seven, eight, nine minutes without a whistle. I mean, there's only, I think, four or five penalties in the game. Like, it's a game that goes very quick. There's There's a lot of flow to it, back and forth, and up and down there, you know, there isn't a uh, trap, you know, there isn't uh, you know, there isn't stuff today that we see with hooking or guys getting, you know, harassed with a stick out of the zone or, you know, various picks being set. That game doesn't have that. And, and Scotty told me the one thing he remembers after all these years is the pace of the game. I'm not sure that TV quite captures how fast that game was. Um, I know now when I go to Montreal to watch a game and I'm sitting in the phase, uh, I had a last year, I sat two rows behind the Canadian bench for a game. It's a lot faster <laughs> when you're watching it at that level than when you watch it on TV. It just, it can't help you. You're right there. And so I think to be fair, you're, you know, a 35 year old film, are the players today faster? Yes. Are they stronger? Yes. But I think if you put that game on versus say, four other games or five other games from around the same period, you would see how that game stood out as opposed to, say, maybe a Leafs-Flyers game from the same year. So the subtitle of your book is that this was the night that saved hockey. And I want to ask, what did hockey need saving from? Well, at the time, and I cover this in the book in depth, is at the time the Stanley Cup champions were actually not the Montreal Canadiens, but were the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, the infamous Broad Street Bullies. And there was a real sense in the mid-70s, and this is part for a lot of factors, uh, you know, rapid expansion, you know, WHA, there had been a level of talent that was now playing that maybe wouldn't have been considered professional years before. And there was almost like for some of these newer teams and to sell tickets, there was almost like a roller derby uh, style selling of the game where people, 
you know, the old uh, thing about uh, car racing, that people go out to see the car wrecks. Well, people were coming out to see fights. Um, not the true hockey fan, but there was an argument. Uh, there was a part, a segment of the population that, you know, for them, the fights. And, and the Flyers became the first team to effectively take intimidation, and which the Bruins had used earlier in the early 70s, but they had taken intimidation in fighting and made it an integral part of their game. I mean, if you were going to beat the Philadelphia Flyers at that time, you weren't going to beat them by being prettier or by doing all these moves. You know, you were going to have to go in and physically match them. They forced you to do that, and most teams couldn't. Not to say the Flyers didn't have talented players. They did, but there was a physical price you had to pay if you were going to play the Philadelphia Flyers. And and unfortunately, when when you have a team that wins the Cup and, and using that style, other teams follow in the NHL, and then not only the NHL, but it filtered down, and I detail this in the book, even junior hockey, where it became Goontown in, in like, kid teenage hockey. Uh, and it just it infiltrated the game. The NHL, to its discredit, turned a blind eye to it because it still sold tickets. But it was coming to a head around the period of this game, where where the NHL, you know, Sports Illustrated had to cover three weeks before the New Year's Eve game, you know, a violent sport turns vicious. And, I mean, it was getting to the point where people were not wanting their kids to play hockey. They wanted out. The fighting had corrupted the game. And, and really, the, the night that saved hockey is that New Year's Eve game is played against that backdrop, where the New Year's Eve game is a 60 minutes of pure hockey. There's not a fight in there. There's no pushing and shoving. It's a game of hockey played at its most beautiful and the way it was drawn up. And proof that two teams could sit there and play an actual game based on skill, based on speed, you know, and not based on, you know, intimidation, not based on fighting, not based on stick work. And and that game, I think, really went a long way towards people then were able to say, hey, why isn't the game like that all the time? And then... Of course, the flip side is a couple days later, the Red Army plays the Flyers in Philadelphia. And we all remember, I mean, there's the the, the rough play. The Russians leave the ice to protest. I mean, it was the dynamic and the contrast between those two games really set up uh, what happened a couple months later where the Canadians played the Flyers in the finals, uh, the 76 Stanley Cup finals. And the Canadians, by sweeping the Flyers, really ushered in a new era of hockey that, you know, never again would you have a team that would win the Stanley Cup based on intimidation and physical play. There would have to be a skill element there. So you have the the Canadians win the next four Stanley Cups, followed by the Islanders winning four, and then, of course, the Oilers winning four out of five. I mean, if if you didn't have that New Year's Eve game, I'm not sure. If you didn't have the New Year's Eve game or the Canadians, I'm not sure you have the Oilers of the 80s. I mean, the where... The 80s, sure, there were fights, but the 80s were based on offense. You know, it was the era of the 12-6 game, Gretzky's 200 points and all that, where the emphasis and the focus was on offense. The genesis of that, the birth of that, is in the New Year's Eve game and the Canadians sweeping the Flyers a couple months later. Yeah, I found the dramatic high point of, of your book is not so much the game on New Year's Eve, but that Stanley Cup final in 1976 between the Flyers and the Canadians. And I, I think of it in those ways, thinking of it as a book. The Canadians and the Red Army team were not, this wasn't a story of protagonist and antagonist. 
Uh, they're both, you present them both as protagonists, and it is, as you said, appropriate that that game ended in a tie, but the antagonist for both teams was the Flyers. Yeah, they were, they were the enemy. And, I mean, I, I guess part of that was um, growing up, um, you'd always hear about, you know, like the Flyers, you know, they played the Leafs here in Toronto in the playoffs, and, you know, four guys got arrested for fighting with fans. Like, it was just, it was beyond. It was taken to a point where it was not hockey anymore. It was spectacle. And, and really, the Flyers of that time, I mean, and no excuses for them. They did what they had to do to win. But it took. It had to take a team like if the Flyers had beaten Montreal in the '76 Finals, I shudder to think where the score would have gone, because that would have given them three cups in a row, would have beaten the Canadians, you know, the the flying Frenchmen, the flashy, the the offensive, all this. More teams would have followed the Flyer example, and we would have seen more guys come into the league who, you know, we'd already started seeing that where a skilled little player, oh but a big guy who could throw his dukes was more important. And that was the sad part of the whole thing, where guys who became guys became celebrities who were fighters and became like, wow, the spectacle, whereas hockey players, you know, a guy like a guy like a Dave Schultz could make a player like a Gilbert Perot, you know, non-existent, not even matter. And there's something wrong with that, because you know, Gilbert Perot was, you know, five times the hockey player that Dave Schultz was. Under the rules at the time, Dave Schultz could come up and he could do whatever he wanted to Gilbert Perot, and that's the way it was. And the game had to get away from that. And when the Canadians swept the Flyers, there was a sense, especially even amongst Philadelphia, that, okay, you know, Montreal now, they're the team. You know, and, of course, they proved it by winning the next three cups in a row. But if they proved it by, you know, hockey skill, by, you know, the Flyers would take a penalty. And, of course, Montreal would score a power play. I mean, they basically, in that finals, they neutered the Flyers. You couldn't play that aggressive style with Montreal because, oh, well, we took a cross-check. Well, Montreal scored a power play goal, one nothing, And that's how you had to do away with it. They, they, rent, they became the intimidators against the Flyers. So they intimidated them with their skill and not with their fists, and that was the difference between the two. And, and really, that was the end of the Broad Street Bully era, and, you know, now 35, 36 years later, the Flyers still haven't won a cup. You know, maybe that's because they don't seem to think goaltending is important. I don't know. But, you know, that physical style, they're sure they're still physical in hockey today, but they, nobody's taken it to the extent that that team did. So you talked about the importance or the influence of, of the New Year's, Eve's ga- New Year's Eve game and then the Stanley Cup final in 75-76 for hockey in the 1980s with the uh, importance of speed, scoring, uh, the arrival of European players into the NHL. And I want to carry it further down to today. So last year in the uh, Olympic hockey tournament, in the final game, we saw the two North American teams, the United States and, the Canada, and Canada, playing for the gold medal. And, and really those two teams decisively beat the European teams, in particular the Russian teams. And I'd like to ask you, how has hockey changed as an international sport since 1975-76? The interesting thing, it's been interesting actually, is, you know, the Team Canada and the States, they play more as a team uh, lately, like in the Olympics, for example. They played the most as a team where guys accepted their roles. You know, you have on Team Canada, you have guys playing on the fourth line that are first line NHLers. 
uh, you know, Patrice Bergeron basically was a face-off specialist on that team. You know, Chris Pronger was like a sixth defenseman on that team. Um, you know, Marty Brodeur uh, was shaky at the start of the tournament. He got pulled. You never heard a word out of him. They've become more team-oriented, more goal-oriented. The ironic thing is, I don't know all the European teams, but in particular the Russian team, has become much more of an individual-based mm-hmm. team. You know, uh, you know, Ovechkin comes, he takes the puck, and they don't play as a team. And then their coach is kind of an afterthought because they don't want to listen to him. And they're, they're playing the individual game, whereas with Canada and the U.S., they're playing the team game. The focus is all about team, whereas I thought the biggest thing watching that tournament with Russia was it was all a bunch of individuals playing. Guys were thrown out. Ovechkin takes the puck, makes a shot. Like there was no passing. There was no team concept. There was no, you know, let's do like set up plays and all that. It was just a bunch of individuals, and that's, I think, a byproduct of when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s. That whole system collapsed. And there's a natural rebelling by certain players today against that system. You know, that was the old way. This is the new way. And and you know, a guy like Ovechkin now is making you know, whatever it is, $8 million a year. Um, whereas, you know, his predecessor, Pritison, you know, Valerie Harlamov, my, my God, he never made anything. And I think the reaction is, the guy like Ovechkin is, wow, I've got all this, but he's, he's living life. He's enjoying life. He's getting his picture taken. He's a celebrity. He's all this. It's a stark contrast to the players back then who were just so thrilled to come to Canada to buy a pair of jeans. You know what I mean? Like, it's totally a different... They've gone a complete 180. And the problem is, these guys, they play in the NHL. Their Russia team gets together. And it, it, again, even uh, this year at the World Championships, it's just a gathering of players. Whereas, I think some of the other countries, especially like um, Sweden and Finland, are, are into the team concept. And, and I think that depends on your best players. And I think part of the advantage that maybe a Sweden... Or Finland, I mean, Finland with like a Saki Koivu or a Solani or, or Sweden, you know, Sundin, Forsberg, Nicholas Lidstrom. These are team guys. These are guys who played under just successful, you know, Stanley Cup championship teams, like especially Lidstrom, you know, Forsberg with Colorado. So they buy into the team concept. And of course, the other players look up to these guys because, I mean, if you're a Swedish player, how could you not look up to Nicholas Lidstrom? Whereas the Russian team, you know, with the exception maybe of Pavel Datsuk, you're looking at, you know, Kovalchuk. You know, how much team success has he had? And Ovechkin in the playoffs hasn't exactly, you know, been the most successful player. And, you know, Radulov leaves Nashville to play in the Soviet Union because it's less stuff. There's a lot of issues with the Russian player now that they didn't have before. And until they get a lot of those issues sorted out, they've almost become more of an individual type player as opposed to a team player. And I think that's a large reason why you've seen their uh, lack of success, you know, in the Olympics and stuff like that. Is they just don't come together as a team. Huh. That's interesting. I, I like that idea, and that's a pretty insightful analysis. I want we're just about out of time, and I want to wrap things up. Uh, so, as we talked about, one of the main characters in your book is Ken Dryden, and one of the main issues in your book is the problem of violence in hockey in the 1970s. And just this past year, earlier in the season. Uh, Ken Dryden wrote a, um, I guess you call it an op-ed piece, uh, that about 
violence and in particular head injuries, not only in hockey, but he talked about football and other sports. And, and the title of this essay, How Could We Be So Stupid, was really a, uh, in reading the piece, it, it was a shot uh, across the bow of the NHL uh, to rethink the importance of um, of hitting in the game and to have a greater consideration for uh, for players' health. And I want to ask you, uh, how was Dryden's piece received, and, and is this going to be hockey's constant thorn, this question of, because this was an issue in the 70s, as you talk about, uh, mm-hmm. this question of violence in the game? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think the most progressive of hockey people read Dryden's piece and went, wow, you know, he's hit the nail on the head. And and I thought to myself, it's funny because when researching my prior book, the Jacques Plant book, I mean, when he first put on, the, like we think today, a mask, of course, I mean, it makes perfect sense. But when he first put that mask on, the ridicule that he got, the um, the negativity he got, not just from the hockey establishment, but from his some of his teammates, and from fellow goaltenders for putting on a mask. I mean, we look at it as a no-brainer today. But at the time, he was just ridiculed, and he stuck with it. And it actually took until maybe four years after that when Terry Sawchuk put on a mask that people started going, oh, well, Terry Sawchuk, he's a kind of a, he's a normal goal. Like, like, it took others to follow in Plant's footsteps before people started going, geez, no, this might make sense. And today... We can't even think of a goalie without a mask. And that was part of Dryden's argument as well, that, you know, it's so obvious to us today, but it wasn't obvious in 1960. And I and his point was well taken that it's the same thing today with the violence and the headshots and all this. Are we going to look back 30 years from now and go, geez, what were we thinking? It's so obvious today. I, I think part of the problem with the, the rash of concussions and the headshot things is it's not as cut and dried an issue in terms of there's not an easy solution. Um, I don't know how you stop. Uh, I mean, guys get, guys get concussions. It happens. I, I think there has to be more time spent on leaving guys out. This whole attitude of, you know, take the smelling salts and get back out there, thankfully, seems to be disappearing. But uh, it, it's unfortunate. Guys are going faster. I think people definitely have to look at the equipment. I think the equipment has gone from protecting players to, you know, some of these shoulder pads and elbow pads now are just beyond when they hit you. And, and you know, there's certain aspects of the game that have to be tweaked. The problem is you always have an issue, whether it's the mask in the 60s, the fighting in the 70s. You know, the National Hockey League, as long as things are going good at the gate, as long as people pay their ticket, they're not going to want to change drastically their product. Um and that's why, for example, the mask thing was never a thing that the NHL brought in. It had to be something that the goalies did themselves. Uh, the fighting in the 70s had to be something that the Canadians themselves went out and took care of. And I don't know how you can come to a similar solution with the current problems facing the league. I mean, Ken Dryden, to me, is one of the most thoughtful, one of the most respected, one of the most you know, articulate people about the sport. But, you know, I'd be willing to bet you that the NHL isn't knocking down his door to ask him for his opinion on much. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's a sad thing. But the NHL, I think at the end of the day, it's a business. They run it as a business. As long as we make money, you know, that's the main point. Um, even currently, like the whole expansion thing in Winnipeg. I mean, they don't want to go back to Winnipeg. 
you know, they'd love to stay in Atlanta. It's more TV market, but they didn't have a choice. And then they go to Winnipeg and they tell them, you've got to buy 13,000 tickets over the next, you know, for each game for the next three years. And you've got to put this money out. And people did and, and good for them. But at the end of the day, it's money. It's a business. And sadly, as long as it's that, you're not going to have as much, you know, the, the players are almost become commodities. I mean, a sad part of the whole hockey season was Sidney Crosby this year was having an mm-hmm. amazing season, like a real one-for-the-book season. And, you know, within half, within half the year, he's gone, and he doesn't come back. And, I mean, I grew up in an age in the 80s where, you know, guys respected Wayne Gretzky. You know, they didn't touch him. Sure, he had some ankle with them, but, but other players were like, you know, Wayne's making us a lot of money. You know, the game's really popular because he's popular. So he got a little bit of a, I won't say a free pass, but he got a little bit more respect. And I think, sadly, that's another part that's disappeared from the game is there's no respect anymore. And this went back to a good example is uh, Lemieux, Mario, when he was playing, you know, guys hacking him on the hand to break his stick because we want to win the cup. Or, or even Lindros, you know, he's cutting across the middle, and, you know, Scott Stevens hits him. It's a clear, now we look back, it's a clear headshot. But at the time, oh, what a great hit. And Stevens got the consummate trophy because, you know, we're going to win the Cup. So, well, geez, there's Philadelphia's best player. Well, we can, you know, that's the mentality. We, we've got to get out of that mentality of myself and winning. And unfortunately, you know, it's more prevalent than ever. Hey, we took Crosby out. No problem. Hey, he's out of the game. Pittsburgh's not as good. And, as long as you have that, I, I just don't know what the easy answer is to that. So since this is a sports show, we should engage in a little uh, whimsical yet educated guesswork. So a seven-game series between the Canadians and the Red Army team, who would have won? Uh, the Canadians. Uh, only because if you read the book, the one thing that that Canadian team had, or that Russian team, and, and almost every other team, was their depth. I mean, they had... And if you watch the game, um, you know, they have the, clearly they're the uh, aggressor. You know, they carry the play offensively. And it's hard to imagine over the course of a seven-game series, Tretiak being that good throughout the series. And on the flip side, it's hard to imagine Dryden being that bad in the series. So do I think the Russians would have won a game or two? Yeah, probably. But I think the Canadians would have uh, probably beaten them in six or five or six. And that's no slight on them because if you look at the record, the Canadians in the playoffs in 76 only lost one game, you know, and they swept the Flyers in the final. And the next year, I think they lost one game and they swept the Bruins in the final. So, I mean, this was a team that, you know, losing was not a habit. And uh, I think the Canadians, you know, probably six games, but they probably would have come out on top. So speaking as a dispassionate, neutral Hockey historian, rather than a Habs fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean, and you're right. But I mean, I I look at that '70s team, and I mean, they weren't really even challenged in a series until Boston, maybe in '79. And but in those years, in '76, '77, they weren't a team. I mean, that was a team the next year that lost eight games over an 80 game schedule. I mean, that lost one game at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were a team that, unlike a lot of other teams, they didn't take nights off, and 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 they really were a team that it's hard to imagine any team at that time beating that Canadian team four to seven. And 
as I said, the Russian team had a lot of talent and all that, but I think over the case of a long course of a series, I think the Canadians would have been able to exert their will. And uh, that's why I say five or probably six game series at the end. Russia just didn't have the depth. And when you watch the game, um, you'll notice the Russian team, they played their top two forward lines pretty much the whole game. And they only played four defensemen. Well, you know, as a dispassionate hockey uh, fan, when you have one team playing four lines and another team playing two lines, over the course of a seven-game series, that comes home to roost. And I think that would have happened in this case. So I'll ask you to finish, Todd. What are you working on now, or can you tell us? Uh, I'm just starting my third book. I'm doing the research part. Uh, We're going a little bit more current on this book. Uh, The new book is a book that examines the season and the playoffs of the 1992-93 season. Mm -hmm. From the four angles um, being like that was uh, Patrick Waugh won the Conn Smythe that year. Uh, Doug Gilmore of Toronto had his greatest year. And, of course, Mario Lemieux won the Hart Trophy that year. And we couldn't forget Wayne Gretzky, who in the playoffs, you know, had one of his greatest comebacks after his back injury that held him out for half the year. So those four guys are the main, and then we use that as the angle to talk about the season and how that season was really a transitional season between the high-flying 80s and the uh, shutdown, so to speak, uh, left-wing lock era that came a few years after. All right, very good. So once again, the title of the book is The Greatest Game, about the uh, New Year's Eve game between the Montreal Canadiens and the Soviet Red Army team. So, Todd, thanks again for appearing on New Books and Sports. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Todd Deneau about his book, The Greatest Game, The Montreal Canadiens, The Red Army, and The Night That Saved Hockey, published by McClelland and Stewart in 2010. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from art and Asian studies to technology and world affairs. If you like what you heard, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant week.